Well, let's uh, pray once again as we um, prepare to consider the word of the Lord more fully. Father, we do thank you again for your grace and your love. Lord, grace that we don't deserve, mercy that abounds. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have for eternity. Looking forward to that day when you will return in judgment, but also in fulfillment of all that you have communicated in advance. So God, we hope and long for that day. But until then, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to all that you've called us to. And really today, Lord, help us to be faithful to what, you're, what you instructed Timothy and what in turn you're instructing us through this letter. God, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to ask you, do you have a will? I have a will. Danielle and I have a will. But unfortunately, it was written before Zoe was born. And now that we have it, and we don't even live at that house anymore. That we, so does that mean we have a will? I don't know. I'm hoping not to find out anytime soon. But, you know, they say that having a will is important, at least the financial advisors and the attorneys, and I'm sure family members and those coming behind are all going to really appreciate if I would get a will. Um, But it helps people understand what should happen with all the stuff we've accumulated. I mean, you've seen that bumper sticker, right? The one who dies with the most toys wins. But that's wrong. The one who dies with the most toys still dies. But a will is a sort of way of also a sort of way of leaving a message or a a source of encouragement or even making a statement. I've seen several different movies that do a really good job taking wealth and and as it's passed on, making the people who receive it earn it. There's some really cool, even Christian movies about that. But there's also been various stories over the years of outrageous expectations that people must achieve in order to get the gift right? In 2011, Forbes published an article entitled 10 Strange Will and Testaments. These people with varying degrees of wealth had final instructions regarding their estates. Some were vindictive, some were generous, some were blessed, some blessed their dogs and cats. Some had simply some strange things that they wanted their heirs to do. So let's consider a few. We won't do all ten, but let's consider a few. The first is Harry Houdini, the renowned master escapee and daredevil died in, in 1926 on Halloween, which is fitting. And towards the end of his life, Houdini had become mystified with the idea of an afterlife and spiritual mediums. If only he had come to faith. Houdini promised his wife, Bess, that he would contact her in the afterlife using a pre-planned 10-digit secret message that only she would know in order to silence the naysayers when she eventually reported his presence, which she never did. He never contacted her. The other kind of strange thing in his will is he wanted everybody, he wanted a seance every year on the anniversary of his death. Another person 
If you're a Star Trek fan, you'll appreciate this. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek and inventor of the, no, of the phrase to boldly go where no man has gone before, made certain to maintain that statement long after his passing. His last will and testament included instructions to have his, his ashes scattered via a space stat- satellite that was orbiting the earth. So Gene Roddenberry is still in orbit somewhere up there. And that was carried out in 1997. Charles Vance Miller is a Toronto-based attorney who had a love for practical jokes And in his last will and testament, he bequeathed a large sum of money that was up for grabs. In fact, what he said was this, is that the the woman who had the most children in the next decade would get all of this money. And so it became this great stork derby as all of these women began to compete for, for Charles Vance Miller's money. It turns out that four women tied in the next decade, as they each had nine children. And they received, in turn, $125,000 each. I'm not sure that that would help too terribly much with all nine kids. They would need that for sure. Here's another one. Eleanor Ritchie, heiress to the Quaker State Refining Corporation. Ritchie left about, uh, about $14 million to her 150 stray dogs. And when the last dog died, the remainder of that estate was to go to the Auburn University Research Foundation with funds dedicated to research on canine disease. Another dog lover, Thomas Shrewbridge, who was a California prune rancher, he turned over his shareholders' rights of his estate to his two dogs, making them owners of 29,000 shares of stock in the local electric company. The dogs regularly attended stockholders and board of directors meetings. I have no idea how they voted or how they knew how to vote. Shake, raise your paw. No, don't raise your paw. And finally, one more. If those of you who are Marvel fans will appreciate this, a guy named Mark Grunewald it was the executive editor of Captain America and Iron Man comics, as well as being involved in other Marvel comics. Grunewald stated that he wished for his ashes to be mixed with the ink that was used to print the comic books. And they were. I'm glad I was not a comic book fan. There were some other strange bequeaths, bequests. How do you say that? Anyways, inheritances. And all of this, I think, works and is well and good if, if all you want to do is allocate your stuff or just be remembered. But what if you want to do more? What if you want to do more than just give your stuff away or make some strange request and float around in space for eternity? This is where 2 Timothy comes into play. If you have your Bibles and want to open to the book of 2 Timothy, that's where we'll be today. And in some ways, the book of 2 Timothy is sort of like Paul's last will and testament. You see, he has a few instructions about some things, mainly things that he wants Timothy to bring to him before he, he is released from prison. But more than that, it's a letter of encouragement and, and exhortation to Timothy himself. 
Commentators suggest that this letter was written just a couple of years after 1 Timothy. And it seems that that in that time, things had not changed very much for Timothy. He's still fighting some of the same battles that 1 Timothy dealt with. He's still wrestling with the same problems. And now he's getting more and more discouraged over this. But also, not only was the situation not much improved for Timothy, it wasn't much improved for Paul either. In fact, Paul, when he wrote this letter, was in prison. And not only that, but he had been uh, had to defend himself in trial, and that defense did not go well. In fact, it went so poorly that he basically received a death sentence, and and it looked like that was going to be carried out very shortly. So here in what is likely Paul's final letter, we get to see a bit of his heart for Timothy in the midst of the challenges that he's facing. But we also get to see his steadfastness for the work of the Lord as he remained faithful to the end. As we consider this book today, we're going to look at some themes and some encouragements that permeate the book instead of looking at at an outline. And there are a lot of good outlines out there. In fact, uh, some of the kids have these big pieces of paper that walk through what the Bible project does. And if there are extra in the back, you're welcome to take those home. Um, And if you want to color this afternoon while someone else, moms, is making your dinner. But one thing I found interesting as I was studying this letter this week is that there's roughly 34 times when Paul makes a direct command, an imperative to Timothy. 34 times when he says, do this, do this, do this, do this. Maybe he doesn't use those words, but it's, it's a sort of command. So let's consider some of the things that he does. First of all, Paul encourages Timothy to guard the trust to guard the trust. If that sounds a little bit familiar, because in the last chapter of 1 Timothy, he also said that. But here's what he says in the opening chapter of of, uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 14. He says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within, within us, guard the good deposit, or guard that which is entrusted to you. Much like the executor of an estate would care for the assets of someone's will or trust, Paul's encouragement here is for Timothy to take care of what has been entrusted to him. And so as I thought about this, okay, guard the trust, guard what has been entrusted to you, it sort of made me ask this question, what is the trust or what is this good deposit? And it seems like there's a, a few different possibilities. The first possibility, the ESV Study Bible suggests that it's the gospel itself. The gospel itself is what has been entrusted to Timothy to pass along. Which then, of course, asks, well, what is the gospel? You know, here in the, in, if you've grown up in church, you, know, you think, oh, God, the gospel, I got it. But in the gospel, we essentially believe that God made us in his image. And yet saw us in our helpless and sinful and rebellious state. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life on earth. Die, uh, 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 live a perfect life on earth, fully human and fully God. And then take the punishment for our sin by dying the death that he did not deserve on the cross. He then rose from the grave on the third day, conquering the penalty of our sin for all eternity. He rose from the grave. And then, so that all who receive Jesus' free gift of salvation, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, allow us, when we receive that by faith, to be in a right relationship with God, again, for all eternity. 
And we get to walk daily in a relationship with Jesus, learning how to live and love in the way that honors him. I think this is the essence of what the gospel is. And I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to the gospel, maybe today's the day that you do that. Maybe today is the day of salvation, the day to respond, the day to repent, to say, God, I'm sorry for my own rebellion. Receive this free gift and trust in him. So this may be some of that deposit, that trust that that Timothy has been entrusted with. But it may be more than that. In fact, uh, the ESV study Bible went on to suggest that that Timothy may be entrusted with the entirety of the Christian faith. With all that it means to be a Christian. Gifted by the Holy Spirit. In the fellowship with other believers. Part of that community of faith that we are saved into. But it may also be, not only the gospel, the entirety of the Christian faith, but it may also be his specific assignment. If you remember last week, we talked about assignments that God gives us. And in this case, Timothy had been given a very specific assignment to instruct and organize the church at Ephesus. The deposit that has been, has been entrusted to Timothy may be all of those things. And when you think about it, the deposit entrusted to Timothy is really entrusted to all of us. Our assignments might be different. Ephesus is way far away. But we are entrusted with the same good news of the gospel. And we have the same hope to proclaim. We have the same faith to live out. So Timothy was given this trust to guard But how did he get this trust? How did he get it? First of all, it seems that he got this trust, this faith from his mother and his grandmother. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy 1.5. It says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You see, he seemed to catch their faith. But more than that, they were intentional about their faith. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, verses 14 and 15. It says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, this is where Lois and Eunice came into play, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings and how you are able to make wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Last week we saw that how Timothy was from a multi-ethnic family. His mother and apparently his grandmother were Jewish. And his father was Greek or a Gentile. His father likely did not have the same faith that, that, his, his, that Timothy's mom had. And it seems like at least Lois and Eunice read the Bible or recited stories to him about what they learned in synagogue. Had him in, at the synagogue regu- regularly in order to put him under the teaching and admonition of, of the word of God that they had. They taught him. They lived out their faith in front of him. And I got to tell you, I think it's quite providential that because I didn't plan this this way. It just happened to be that Second Timothy landed on Mother's Day. But I think it's providential that it is this day. And and so, moms, I want to just encourage you. Thank you for what you do to pour into your children. Let me steal a phrase from Nehemiah when he said he, he told his adversaries, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Moms, 
grandmothers, let me encourage you. You are doing a great work. Don't come down. Your involvement in the spiritual development of your children and grandchildren is crucial and important. Lois and Eunice poured into Timothy in such a way that when Paul and Timothy met years earlier in Lystra, Paul could see the hand of God in Timothy's life. And that, I think, was a result of what his mother and grandmother did. Earlier this week, I was reading the book Captivated by Christ by a guy named Richard Chin. If you ever get to get a chance to see a video by Richard Chin, he's, a, he's an Aussie, so he's got this great Aussie accent. Um, but anyways, you can't read the accent in the book except the spelling of things. All that to say, <laughs> it's just a distraction. Um, in the book, he quoted a letter that John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, a letter that John Newton wrote to pastors in Australia. And I think it's appropriate to, to consider one of the things he said because some of the pastors that were frustrated, they were discouraged that there wasn't more fruit, that there weren't more people coming to faith. And Newton wrote to these pastors. He said, Pastor, I want you to understand that you're not planting something that will bloom immediately. You are planting acorns. You are planting and fertilizing acorns that take years to mature and develop and ultimately grow into these beautiful oaks. Moms, I want to encourage you. You are also planting acorns. It may take years for, some of, for what you're investing in your children and grandchildren to bear fruit. But keep working. You're doing a great work. Don't come down. For Timothy, his mom and his grandmother weren't the only influences. You see, up to this point in, uh, to this point in his life, he had been greatly influenced and received this trust from Paul. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. For this reason, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see, Paul could see that the Spirit of God was on Timothy. He could see the potential that rested in him. And Paul not only anointed Timothy by laying hands on him as a means of blessing him, but then he invested him. We talked last week about how many years Paul and Timothy worked together as they traveled all over the, the, the known world at that time. Planting churches and pouring into people. Timothy got to watch Paul teach. He got to watch him encourage. He was present when, when Paul wrote several of the letters to the churches. And Timothy received his, this trust from his family and from Paul, but most importantly, he received this trust from God. He received this trust from God himself. You see, the gospel is a gift from God. It is ultimately God who calls us into a relationship with Him. And we get to respond. We get to join in to what He's doing. But as we continue to think about this trust, Paul urged Timothy to guard the trust. And now that we know what the trust is and how he got it, we have to ask, well, what is he guarding this trust from? And Paul urged Timothy in his first letter to refute false teaching and other controversies. And it seems that Timothy was still dealing with that. 
There were some who had said that the resurrection had already happened and they were stirring up division and they were causing strife and a lack of peace in the church. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 16 to 18, it says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. But Paul also mentions that there were foolish and ignorant controversies in the church. And in addition to that, he acknowledges that there will be people in the church who will simply drift and they'll simply wander away and they'll get tired of hearing the good news of what God has done. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think this is where we have to be careful with things like prosperity theology, the, the theology that says that God wants you to be rich. That if you just give to God, he will give back to you tenfold, good measure, pouring over. We also have to be careful with things like liberation theology that says that Jesus came not just to liberate us from the consequences of our sin, but to liberate us from all oppression here on earth. But also we have to be careful with various forms of liberal theology that essentially takes, seeks to loosen the moral standards and moral guidelines that we have in God's Word. There are so many, more, so, so many other theologies that we could think about, but these all have been very divisive over the centuries. We must be careful that we're guarding the trust from wandering into things that we think we want to hear. But there's one more question that the, the thought about this, this trust to guard begs. And that is, how should Timothy guard the trust? You see, it seems that Paul gave some instructions to Timothy on a personal basis, but he also gave it to him on a public basis. Personally, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2, 22 to 26, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with those foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul simply says, hey, avoid that stuff. Avoid that mess. Flee the passions that are within you, those passions that would seek to undermine your faith and pursue these other things. Pursue godliness, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But not only does Paul say this on a personal level, he tells him some things to do very publicly. And Paul recognizes that the trust must be passed along. Just like we might have a successor trustee or or a successor executor of your estate. Paul wants us, all of us, and specifically Timothy here, he's telling them, 
Timothy, you need to pass this along. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, this, this won't be on the screen. But 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So look at what's happening there. You have multiple generations. You have Paul who received this information, this inspiration from God who invested in Timothy. Who Now Paul is telling Timothy, you need to invest in other men who will then be able to invest in other men. You have generation one, generation two, generation three, generation four. It's got to be something that is passed along. And so I wonder, where are we in that generational line? To some degree, I think we're probably all over the place in that. Hopefully someone is always investing in, in each of us, but also that we have an eye. We have a mind to see who has God assigned for me to invest in. Children are clear, clearly the, the immediate next generation, but who, what about others? So one of the big things that we see in this final letter of Paul's life is this encouragement for Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to him. And, and I think we have been given a precious gift in the gospel. Like Timothy, I believe that we should guard it as well. Not because it can escape us, but, but rather because we can easily try to add things to the gospel and thereby watering it down, watering, the, uh, watering down the substance of what's there. But we can also remove things from the gospel, reducing the practical power of the gospel to transform. But one of, uh, one of Paul's other exhortations or commands to Timothy is that he should preach and teach the word. As a young pastor, Paul urged Timothy to preach. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. He says, I charge you... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebu- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. By the time Timothy was preaching, he, he likely only had the Old Testament scriptures. He may have had a handful of the Gospels, maybe Mark, which was the first one, and Matthew, possibly Luke. John, John's Gospel came along a few, few years later. There were possibly uh, several of Paul's letters in circulation that he had learned, and he had that information to be able to preach. And one of the gracious things that we have is the, the whole counsel of God's Word, the, the whole body of 66 books written over roughly 2,000 years, and yet they all proclaim the same message, the same story. I think that's a beautiful gift from God. In fact, Paul encourages us and encouraged Timothy in in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says, all Scripture, all Scripture, all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, there are a myriad of materials out there 
I use commentaries every week. We have Bible guides and podcasts and now videos and, and all these things. There's journal articles. There's even countless sermons from other people. But none of those replace the Word of God. This is our authoritative book. It'd be easy to try to preach other materials, but this is the book. This is the authority that God has given us. This is our source material. A week or so ago, we got a message from Eric and Lynn and, uh, in, the, in, in wherever they are. <laughs> And uh, they're, so during this season, they're in a Muslim nation. And so during, right now, uh, Muslims around the, around the world are celebrating Ramadan. And every day from, from early in the morning, from the very first prayer until the ending prayer of the day, all these Muslims are fasting. And so at night, so typically what happens where Eric and Lynn are is people kind of chill out during the day. They sleep, they take long naps. They just relax because if you're awake, you have to eat. And if you're asleep, I don't have to eat. So they're fasting all day. And then at night, when the, when the, after that last prayer is prayed, as the sun goes down, they begin having a feast. It's called an iftar feast. And so Eric and Lynn were telling us that in, in the last month, I think there's only been um, maybe three nights that they haven't either been at someone's house for an iftar or come, have people come to their house for an iftar. And, and he said this, oh, this, this beautiful situation happened. He, had, he has you know, scripture in various places around his house. And he had the book of John sitting out on this little table, this book of John in Arabic. And as their, their guests were leaving, the man went, went and said, what is this? Is this a holy book? And they gave Eric a chance to say, yes, this is one part of it. You see, we believe that there are 66 books written by countless authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he, he took the book of John and he said, here, would you read this? Would you read? And so the guy gladly received it. And they, it opened up other conversations for them. They're looking forward to going hiking and camping with them in a few weeks so they can, they can invest, investigate this more. But all that to say, we have this authoritative book. It wasn't written by one person. It wasn't written at one time. It was written by thousands, over thousands of years by dozens of authors inspired by the same God. This is our source book. We must preach and teach this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, The time is coming when people will not endure Sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, I had to tell you, when I come across difficult passages, in fact, we had one last week, knowing that it may not sit well with you and doesn't sit well with me or may not sit well with people who listen to this now that everything's on the Internet. They may listen to us five, ten years from now. Everything in me wants to avoid those difficult conversations, those difficult parts of Scripture. My flesh and that non-confrontational part of me wants to get around it, preach something else. But we must preach, teach, and study the Word. 
And I want to encourage you, if you hear me venturing off into things, if you see me conveniently avoiding those difficult passages, let me encourage you to come talk to me or grab an elder and say, Hey, Joel, you skipped that. You need to preach the entire Word of God. And I want to encourage you to know, know that as I try to faithfully preach the Word and teach others to do the same, the Holy Spirit is working in me, working on that in me, challenging my preconceived ideas, my actions, and my thoughts. And we get to submit together to the authority of the Word of God. As I said, this is our textbook. It is our source material. Because this is our authoritative text and people will not always want to hear it, Paul reminded Timothy to expect and to endure suffering. On three different occasions in this letter, Paul tells Timothy to share in or endure suffering. Here's one of those. In 2 Timothy 1a, right near the beginning of the book, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as a prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, with Paul being in prison, there was a great deal of shame that people were casting on Timothy because here his mentor, if this gospel was so good, why would Paul be in prison? Why would God allow Paul to suffer for the sake of the gospel? And so Paul encouraged him. He he said, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of what I'm going through, but share in The suffering, expect it, endure it. You see, there's something mysterious and profound when people are willing to suffer and even die for their faith. It shows a level of faith and commitment in the hope of the gospel. If you've ever heard of the book, um, The Insanity of God, it's it's a beautiful book that talks about the suffering that many people around the world have encountered. But John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote about, about the suffering that servants of God may encounter in this way. He said, The place of suffering in service and of passion in mission is hardly ever taught today. But the greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is a willingness to suffer and die. It may be a death to popularity by faithfully preaching the unpopular biblical gospel or death to pride by use of modest methods in resilience on the holy in reliance rather on the holy spirit or death to racial and national prejudice by identification with another culture or to material comfort by adopting a particular lifestyle but the servant must suffer if he is willing to bring light to the nations The seed must die if it is to multiply. You see, it's not that we want to be persecuted. It's not that we want to suffer. I like pain as much as the next person does. Rather, I don't like it at all. But I think part of the reason Paul was writing these things to Timothy is that he was being shamed because of Paul's imprisonment and being threatened by his own persecution and suffering. Timothy, as a young man of God, as a young pastor, was under some really difficult times. But Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, if this is encouragement, I don't know what is. It's not. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. You see, suffering has a way of identifying us with Christ. We recognize He suffered for us. Am I willing to go through a portion of what He did so that I might honor Him with my life? Suffering has a way of refining us. In fact, on Thursday, the middle schoolers and I began studying the book of James. And in James chapter 1, he, he writes, Consider it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? I don't like trials. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It raises the stuff the sinful stuff, the the junk in our lives to the top so God can sweep it away and purify us. Suffering has a way of reinforcing our convictions. Do I really believe what I say I believe? Has a way of helping others see God through us. Has a way of helping us see that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God and His kingdom. In fact, uh, that's one of Paul's arguments in 2 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. He says, share in suffering. And here's a couple of analogies that he used. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here's a second analogy. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, all of those, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, they're all working for something that is far bigger than them. They're doing things that is, you know, the soldier's receiving orders from someone else. The, the athlete is working for a prize that he, know, he might not know he's going to win, but he's going to compete. And work as hard as he can to get there. And the farmer is growing stuff for more than just himself. They're working for something bigger. So suffering allows us to see that we're part of something bigger, something greater. But there's one more thing that I want us to consider. And that is, Paul essentially, essentially says, follow my example and stay the course. Keep going. Keep Going Several times through the letter, Paul reflects back on the things that God had called him to endure. Abandonment, imprisonment, persecution, physical beatings, and more, all for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3, 10-11, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them, the Lord, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul firmly believed in the power of the gospel to save. Jesus Christ had saved him from a destructive path of ignorance that would have led to destruction, his own eternal destruction. The sufferings of Christ became his motivation. The hope for eternity was his goal. Look at what he writes in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
See, there's a part of the Christian faith that on one hand doesn't make sense. I mean, think about what we are communicating to the world around us. God created you and me in his image. And yet we as humans rebelled against him. And so in love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, bearing our shame so that we could have an eternal relationship with him. That part all makes sense. And that message is a message that may cause us persecution. It may cause us imprisonment. It may get us killed. What? We have to recognize that God in his love called us to be a part, be with him for eternity. So those things Paul writes elsewhere, he says, these momentary and light afflictions, they're nothing. We don't need to worry about that in light of eternity. Paul, you know, you might say, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live a life of a, of a, a follower of Christ with conviction? Is it worth it to deny myself these pleasures of this world? Is it worth it to be identified with Christ? Paul, I think, would say a resounding yes, even from prison, even at the hand of a whip, even from the stake that he was going to be burned on. Paul would say Finish the course, obey the call of God, because there is a reward. Finish the assignment laid out for us. In fact, in chapter 4, Paul writes, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's specifically for Timothy. He's saying, do these things. And then he has this caveat. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Stay the course. Beloved, guard what has been entrusted to you. The gospel, the joy of the Christian faith, the specific assignments that God has for you. Preach and teach the word, knowing that some will respond and and others will reject the message. Your proclamation and godly living may result in suffering. Expect it. Endure it. And stay the course knowing that Jesus Christ is laying up a reward of eternal life. When I was a teenager, this was the Bible that I used in, in my quiet time. I would read little pericopes, little sections. I mean, they have lots of little headings. And so I'd read that and that would be, you can see I like to color in my Bible. But I remember, vividly remember one day coming across this passage in Second Timothy chapter 4. When Paul penned those words to Timothy saying that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I wrote in the, end, uh, in the margin of my Bible, in fact, let me read exactly. It said, my goal is to say this when my life comes to an end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Beloved, the world around us is moving from bad to worse. They want people who will tickle their ears with 
messages endorsing every behavior. We must fight the good fight, not with anger, not with bitterness, but with love. Communicating the love that God has for them through Jesus Christ. They want us to quit and turn aside and give up. We must finish the race. They want us to believe whatever is entailed in the latest trends. We must keep the faith. The eternal reward is worth far more than any any temporary relief. And I hope that all of us can declare with our dying breath, with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And here's the joy. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for this encouragement that we have in this heartfelt letter from Paul to Timothy. Lord, thank you for inspiring this. Thank you for the way that you are instructing us and giving us some, some, some insight, even allowing us to read this intimate correspondence. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to guard what you've, been in, what you've entrusted us. Help us to preach and teach the word, not, not to get distracted by all sorts of other things. And we know that when we do that, God, we know that there may be persecution and suffering. So Lord, help us to expect that, to endure it. Give us the grace and the strength that we will need. to stay the course. And God, we pray that you would help us in this by the power of your spirit, by the encouragement we receive from one another, not so that we can receive glory, not so people can write our name in the clouds and write our name on some billboard saying, hey, look at this great person, but God, so that we might glorify you. Help us, we pray. Because it is only by your grace, only by your spirit, only by in the fellowship that we have with one another that we might be able to endure. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.